0: This is Democracy Now.
1: If Hezbollah decides to enter the war, it will long for the second Lebanon war. They will be making the biggest mistake of their lives, and we will hit them with an unimaginable force. It will mean devastation for them and the state of Lebanon.
0: As the death toll from Israel's 18-day bombardment of Gaza nears 5,800, tensions escalating on the Israel-Lebanon border. Tens of thousands of residents have evacuated their homes as Israel and Hezbollah exchange fire on a daily basis. We'll get the latest and look at how Israel's endgame in Gaza is to push Palestinians into Egypt. And we'll look at how U.S. policy toward Latin America has fueled historic numbers of asylum seekers. Over the weekend, Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador met with other Latin American leaders calling for the U.S. to end its blockade of Cuba.
2: One of the agreements of yesterday's meeting was to promote bilateral dialogue between the United States and Cuba, to resolve pending issues, especially those related to the blockade of Cuba, which greatly affects the population.
0: All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Health officials in Gaza say Israel's unrelenting bombardment of the besieged Palestinian territory has killed another 700 people over the past 24 hours, bringing the death toll over the past 18 days to about 5,800. More than 2,000 children are among the dead. 1.4 million Gazans, or more than half the territory's population, have been displaced. The UN reports at least 42 percent of Gaza's housing units are damaged or destroyed. In northern Gaza, the Indonesian hospital ran out of fuel Monday and suffered a power outage that brought life-saving medical equipment offline before officials restored power. Gaza's health ministry says it will run out of fuel for electric generators at other hospitals within the next 48 hours. It reports 32 of Gaza's health centers are out of service. Elsewhere, officials at Awafa wafa Hospital in Gaza City say the building's entrance and surrounding areas were targeted today in an Israeli airstrike. Meanwhile, a convoy of trucks carrying humanitarian aid remains stalled on the Egyptian side of the Rafah border crossing into Gaza. So far, Israel has allowed fewer than 100 trucks into Gaza, which aid groups call a drop in the ocean of what's needed to provide for Gaza's 2.3 million people. A spokesperson for the World Food Program says a critical shortage of fuel is preventing bakeries in Gaza from producing bread. Not have enough power to to get the machines working. And unfortunately, some were also um, hit. And so with this, you know, the collapse of essential infrastructure, the lack of fuel to make sure that the, the machines are running, it's really making a situation that is already catastrophic worse. Hamas has agreed, has released two Israeli civilians held hostage in Gaza. On Monday, a Hamas spokesperson said 79-year-old Nurit Cooper and 85-year-old Yocheved Lifshitz had been let go for humanitarian reasons and poor health grounds. Hamas shared videos showing armed fighters releasing the elderly hostages to Red Cross officials just before the video ends. Lifshitz reaches back to shake the hand of one of her captors, saying shalom, the Hebrew word for peace. Earlier today, Yehevet Lifshitz spoke to reporters in Tel Aviv describing a harrowing scene as she was kidnapped and driven off to Gaza on a motorbike with two Hamas fighters, then forced to walk for miles through a network of underground tunnels. Once in Gaza, Lifshitz says her treatment improved. She says she was seen by a doctor, fed well, and had the opportunity to wash. Her daughter, Sharon, translated her remarks to reporters.
2: My mom is speaking about uh, the time there. She's telling us about um, sharing food with the people, that the f- people, when she first arrived, uh, when they told them that they are Muslims and they're not going to hurt them. Um, and that uh, they shared, they ate the same food that their, uh, um, the, um, the Hamas was eating.
0: Israeli, Israel believes about 220 other hostages remain in Gaza, including the husbands of both women. Hamas has now released a total of four women. The United Nations warns nearly 20,000 people across southern Lebanon have fled their homes amidst escalating violence on the Lebanese-Israel border. On Monday, the Biden administration said it's readying plans to evacuate hundreds of thousands of U.S. citizens across the broader Middle East in case Israel's assault on Gaza provokes a wider war, including 600,000 Americans in Israel and another 86,000 in Lebanon. French President Emmanuel Macron has arrived in Israel for meetings with top Israeli officials. In Jerusalem, Macron told Israeli President Isaac Herzog he stood shoulder to shoulder with Israel and pledged France's full support for Israel's bombardment of the Gaza Strip. Macron urged Israel to avoid what he called a dangerous escalation in the region. Herzog said he also wanted to avoid a wider war, but said Israel stood ready to attack Lebanon if Hezbollah continues cross-border assaults.
3: I want to make clear we are not looking for a confrontation in our northern border or with uh, anyone else. We are focused on destroying Hamas infrastructure and bringing our citizens back home. But if Hezbollah will drag us into war, it it should be clear that Lebanon will pay the price.
0: French media report Macron will... Head to Lebanon and Egypt next. His visit to Israel comes a day after some European Union foreign ministers endorsed a humanitarian pause of Israel's attacks in Gaza. In Washington, D.C., President Biden Monday ruled out U.S. support for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza, while Hamas continues to hold hostages. His remarks came as the Pentagon dispatched military advisors and high-tech air defense systems to Israel ahead of Israel's expected ground assault on Gaza. In Canada, a member of the Ontario Legislative Assembly has been censured and expelled from her caucus after making remarks in solidarity with Palestinians. Sarah Jama, who is Black and a disability justice advocate, addressed her colleagues Monday.
2: I restate my call for an immediate ceasefire by Israeli forces and for the immediate restoration of food, water, fuel and electricity in Gaza. And I I applaud the many elected officials in Canada who have joined this call in recent days. And I hope even more of you will speak out.
0: JAMA now sits as an independent after being removed from Ontario New Democratic Party Caucus. Her censure would only be lifted if she issues a formal apology for her remarks. In India, several students were detained in New Delhi Monday as they led a protest near the Israeli embassy demanding a ceasefire in Gaza.
4: Yet, our government, yet most of the countries in the world who hold power are just ignoring the fact as if nothing is happening. Children
0: are dying, hospitals are being bombed. I don't have anything new to say except for the fact that we shouldn't be denied the basic voice that all the students should have in this country. Here in the United States, pressure is mounting on more Congress members to join calls for a ceasefire. On Monday, protesters in Albuquerque, New Mexico, held a nonviolent sit-in at the offices of Senators Martin Heinrich and Ben Ray Lujan, led by Jewish peace activists. Nine people were arrested. The protests came as hundreds of congressional staffers issued an open letter urging lawmakers to support a peaceful resolution to the attacks on Gaza, the return of Israeli hostages, and to grant access to humanitarian aid to the Palestinian territory. Only 18 U.S. lawmakers have signed the ceasefire resolution so far, including Congress members Greg Kassar, Pramila Jayapal and Ilhan Omar. In Ukraine, the governor of Kherson says two people were killed and 14 others injured earlier today by Russian artillery fire. This follows a Russian missile strike in Kharyv on Sunday that created a massive hole in the roof of a postal distribution center, killing six people and injuring 14 others.
4: There was a missile attack. We were working. There was an explosion. Everyone started running away. I did what I could. As much as I managed to, I provided the necessary first aid. Some were stable, they had shrapnel rooms, some were light, some more serious. But some people were in critical condition. Ambulances took them away.
0: In eastern Ukraine, officials in the Russian-controlled city of Donetsk said Ukrainian artillery fire killed one civilian wounded another elsewhere. Russia's navy says it repelled attacks by uncrewed boats launched by Ukraine at Russia's Black Sea Fleet. And Ukraine says it shot down 14 Russian attack drones and a cruise missile. Back in the United States and Texas, Lubbock County officials have approved an ordinance banning pregnant people from traveling through the region to seek an abortion in another state. Lubbock is the largest Texas county to join such efforts. At least three other rural counties have also passed similar measures. Lubbock resident Shelley Kemp denounced the move as she addressed county commissioners Monday. You are going to create a culture of fear and distrust where you set neighbor against neighbor. It's going to have a chilling effect. Just for example, the language used, abortion, tourism, and trafficking, that immediately creates fear and distrust. The United Auto Workers has expanded its strike against the big three U.S. automakers. On Monday, 6,800 auto workers walked out of the Stellantis Sterling Heights assembly plant near Detroit, Michigan. The UAW notes Stellantis made $18 billion in profits last year as Stellantis CEO Carlos Tavares earned total compensation of nearly $25 million, earning as much per day as an average Stellantis employee takes home in a year. UAW President Sean Fain joined workers on the pickup at Line Monday.
5: They've made a quarter of a trillion dollars in the last decade. I mean, Stellantis alone
3: made
1: $12 billion in the first six months of this year. They can afford
5: this. They can make it happen. Our workers deserve their share. I mean, while they say they can't afford this, the next day they announce more dividends for shareholders.
0: Here in New York, the prestigious Community and Cultural Center on the Upper East Side, 92 NY, formerly known as the 92nd Street Y., has temporarily postponed its literary reading series as it faces growing backlash for canceling an event with the Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Viet Tan Nguyen over his criticism of Israeli violence and Palestinians and calls for a ceasefire in Gaza. In response, a number of writers scheduled to participate in the months-long series pulled out, while several 92 NY staff resigned from their jobs. Writer and critic Andrea Long Chu, who's among those who pulled out of the series, referred to 92NY as a pro-war nonprofit. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan González in Chicago. Hi, Juan.
1: Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world.
0: As the death toll from Israel's 18 day bombardment of Gaza nears 5,800, tensions escalating on the Israel Lebanon border. Tens of thousands of residents have evacuated their homes as Israel and Hezbollah exchange fire on a daily basis. We'll get the latest and look at how Israel's endgame in Gaza is to push Palestinians into Egypt. Stay with us.
3: فوني على حدود البدر هويتي قلت النبي يا على حدود هويتي Yeah, الإلتات the Alta, صف بكرابي <تصفيق>
0: At the Border by Marcel Jalife. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman, with Juan González. Authorities in Gaza say Israel's massive bombardment has killed another 700 Palestinians over the past 24 hours, bringing the death toll over the past 18 days to about, about 5,800 Palestinians. More than half of Gaza's population has been displaced. Israel's continuing to reject growing international calls for a ceasefire or a humanitarian pause. The World Health Organization's pleading for more aid to be allowed into Gaza, where 12 hospitals and 32 health centers have been forced to close. Earlier today, the Ministry of Health in Gaza issued a statement announcing we declare the complete collapse of the health system and hospitals in the Gaza Strip. The announcement came hours after the Indonesian hospital in the northern Gaza Strip went dark overnight as it ran out of fuel, but power has since been restored. On Monday, Hamas released two Israeli women who'd been held hostage, 79-year-old Nerit Yitzhak Cooper and 85-year-old Yochevet Lifshitz, were seized on October 7th in the Hamas attack that left about 1,400 people dead inside Israel. As the two women were being released, Yechevet Lifshitz shook hands with one of her captors and could be heard saying shalom, which means peace in Hebrew. Israel believes about 220 other hostages remain in Gaza, including the husbands of both women. As Israel continues to threaten to launch a ground invasion of Gaza, tensions escalating on the Israel-Lebanon border, where Israeli troops in Hezbollah are uh, exchanging fire on a daily basis. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has threatened to devastate Lebanon if a new front in the fighting emerges.
1: I can't tell you now if Hezbollah decides to fully enter the war. If Hezbollah decides to enter the war, it will long for the second Lebanon war. They will be making the biggest mistake of their lives, and we will hit them with an unimaginable force. It will mean devastation for them and the state of Lebanon.
0: In Washington, D.C., State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller warned Hezbollah against escalating its attacks on Israel. And so that we continue to, to make
4: very clear our messages to anyone in the region who is hostile to, um, to Israel that if they are considering attacks, they should reconsider them. And that's why the president ordered the deployment of two carrier strike groups to the eastern Mediterranean.
0: We're joined right now by Rami Khouri, a Palestinian-American journalist, columnist with 50 years' experience in the Middle East. He's a senior public policy fellow at American University of Beirut, former executive editor of The Daily Star in, London, in Lebanon. He is joining us from Boston. Um, Rami, thanks so much for being with us. If you can start yeah. off by talking about um, what is happening on Israel's northern border with Lebanon, as tension and violence escalate.
5: What's happening is something that's happened many times before in the last 30 years or so, but it's uh, slightly different this time. Uh, Hezbollah has become a very powerful force with huge capabilities uh, in uh, technology, missiles, intelligence, uh, uh, secrecy, etc. Every aspect of, uh, of warfare They're also a much bigger force now than they were uh, in the 2006 war because of the mobilization of uh, troops who fought in Syria to defend the Syrian regime. They have a lot of experience, a lot of technology, and more importantly, they're linked to a regional, uh, what they call an axis of resistance, which is uh, Iran, Syria, Hezbollah, Hamas, Ansarullah, which is the Houthis in, in Yemen, uh, and, and smaller groups in uh, Syria and uh, Iraq. Um, there's a constellation of forces uh, that are, of various uh, degrees of uh, capability, uh, and they call themselves the uh, Axis of Resistance. Um, and the, uh, the the northern front of Israel and Lebanon now uh, is far more dangerous to uh, to Israel if a war breaks out than it was uh, before because of this regional capability. And Hezbollah's strategy has also evolved. Uh, It's not going to fight Israel by itself if it comes to that. I I would stress that I believe firmly that neither Israel nor Hezbollah want to initiate a war. Uh, They've done it before. They've both suffered um, huge disruption and destruction. And they know that a full war now would be way more destructive and civilians, mostly and national infrastructure, would suffer. And Hezbollah has planned for this and its uh, strategy to hit... Uh, key strategic uh, industrial uh, transport energy nodes, which it can reach with its uh, rockets. They have precision rockets. Uh, They are very good at um, uh, 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 moving into Israel surreptitiously. They've done it. They sent a drone over the the nuclear facility at Dimona, I think, a few years ago. So um, the the tension at the northern border of Israel, southern border of Lebanon, is designed to send messages back and forth between israel and hezbollah that they're prepared to fight if they need to but they'd rather not so they do tit-for-tat uh... uh maneuvers also there's an element here of testing the hezbollah is very good at this they they're very serious uh, strategic people whatever you may think of them they're, so they they don't just you know buy new weapons and, and, and try to use them they, they test out things they see how israel reacts they do a little attack here a little attack there they send a few troops over the border, they send a drone, they do some missiles, <clears throat> and they see how Israel reacts. Israel has uh, evacuated uh, villages from five kilometers along its northern border, so that's a huge disruption already. And this is part of Hezbollah's strategy. They want to keep testing Israel, probing it, uh, challenging it, uh, taunting it, uh, and they want to disrupt uh, uh, Israel's uh, basic social and economic functioning. They, uh, and the key aim of this in the long run is to, uh, you know, knock down Israel's exaggerated sense of power and dominance. And, you know, Netanyahu is the is the prime example of this. I mean, Netanyahu is, is kind of like a, a Saturday morning cartoon character in the United States. He's a tough guy, and, and he's strong, and if he's challenged, he'll beat the hell out of anybody. Uh, and he just said that yesterday that if if there's war in Lebanon, they're going to destroy Lebanon, and they're already destroying Gaza. And the Hezbollah strategy is to use the regional um, connections it has, along with its own capabilities, along with strategic ambiguity to not allow Israel or the U.S. or anybody to know what really it's going to do, uh, to, de- to kind of uh, destabilize the confidence of Israel, but also to hit society's uh, sense of, of security. What happened in Gaza when Hamas attacked on October 7th, <clears throat> uh, it was an incredible blow to the confidence of the Israeli people in the performance of its armed forces, who were overrun quickly and, and some of them dropped their arms and ran away, so, the, so there's all kinds of different dimensions to you know the northern border. The simplistic, cartoon-like diplomacy and analysis that comes out of most of the mainstream. American media and the, and the American government uh, says that uh, you know uh, there's a danger of a war in, uh, between Hezbollah and Israel on the northern border. It's far more complex and nuanced uh, than that, uh, but there is a serious uh, threat that Israel faces, which. Uh, it might have to fight five different people at the same time if it came down to a regional war, which is I still think it 's not likely uh, uh, but it, but it could happen and this is one of the key new factors and it, it explains a little bit why Hamas has achieved what it 's achieved um, is that it 's coordination among these different uh, groups uh, of uh, uh, resistance fighters across the Arab world and Iran. They coordinate very closely in training and equipment and strategy and communications and all kinds of things. So <clears throat> it's, a, it's a whole new situation uh, in the North, and the United States and Israel, I think, are making the mistake of uh, uh, analyzing the situation based on, you know, what happened in 2006. Uh,
1: uh, six. But I- Rami Khoury, I wanted to ask you, in terms of the Israel strategy, uh, if Israel does want to prevent a regional war, uh, why, for instance, what's your assessment of its repeated now bombings of airports uh, in Syria, uh, and uh, and what the impact that could be on spreading the war?
5: Uh, Israel's been doing that for uh, many years, uh, bombing Iraq and Syria and Lebanon, uh, and they are probably mostly bombing units that are close to Iran or linked to the transport of equipment uh, or, or people from Iran to these uh, different outposts where it has allies across the, the Arab world. That's the assumption that, that most people uh, have. And, uh, and these attacks are designed to disrupt this linkage between Iran and uh, allies in Syria and and other Arab countries. It doesn't work very well, though. I mean, the Israelis are quite sophisticated, but they're also quite uh, simplistic and stupid when it comes to not learning the lessons uh, of their own repeated strategy that doesn't work. You know, they say now they want to wipe out Hamas uh, and, and take away the threat, and they say if Hezbollah... Gets involved, they're going to wipe out Lebanon. <clears throat> they said that four or five times. They occupied Gaza. They occupied South Lebanon. I was in Lebanon. Uh, I lived there for like 20 years and uh, I was there in the 206 war. Uh, so they've done these things. They've, they've caused great misery uh, to Lebanon and, and, uh, and, and Gaza. And where are the two strongest forces now that challenge Israel in a way it's never been challenged before? They're in Lebanon and Gaza. Why? Because Israel, in its uh, uh, tough guy, uh, Joe Palooka cartoon uh, approach to diplomacy and warfare and relations across the region, uh, relies simply on its ability to beat the hell out of anybody and destroy the countries. And you're seeing it in Gaza today. It's unbelievable what they're doing. And physically destroying uh, society's basic infrastructure and, and, and human needs, but it doesn't work. They don't realize all this does is generate greater resistance a year or two down the road, with greater secrecy, higher, tech, higher technology levels, more coordination, and uh, a stronger sense of defiance. And, and I should add here that, you know, the Hezbollah and Hamas—Hamas Hamas is an acronym for Harakat al al-Islamiyya, which means the Islamic Resistance Movement. Resistance is the key operative phrase in Hamas. Hezbollah calls itself, you know, informally, the resistance, the muqawwama. And resistance is a key, maybe the key driver of what these groups and others in the region are doing. Uh, And the Israelis don't seem to understand this uh, because they're the ones being resisted. Um, And with resistance, there's also defiance. So when the U.S. sent the uh, Ford Naval uh, t- uh, Task Force uh, the, a couple of weeks ago uh, and it warned uh, Iran and its allies you know, not to do anything, the next day there were three or four uh, uh, small little attacks against American targets or American allied targets in Iraq and in Yemen and, and other places. So defiance and resistance are two dynamics. That are so significant in the mind of people who are standing up to both Israel and the United States and, and others. Uh, and, and this has to be appreciated much more uh, seriously for anybody who's trying to analyze the region, and certainly for anybody who's trying to uh, act politically or militarily or diplomatically, including the Israelis and the Americans, the Europeans, uh, and others.
1: And and, uh, all the attention in recent uh, days has been on what the Biden administration and the U.S. is doing uh, to support Israel. But there appears to be... uh, uh, uh increasing division in europe on what is happening we're seeing the european union and different states within uh within europe calling for a humanitarian pause uh in essence a, a brief ceasefire uh very different from what the united states is saying i'm wondering your assessment of that
5: well i think the europeans are waking up to the fact that they're uh, they're human beings and they have to react like human beings not like killing machines, which they've done recently following the U.S. Uh, and Israeli lead, um, the the suffering that's been caused in Gaza is unbelievable. And the deliberate, cruel tightening of the—it's uh, not just the pressures, it's the total uh, squeezing of Gaza to try to starve it to death or make it die of thirst <coughs> uh, or let the hospitals stop running because they don't have Electricity, this is a level of barbarism and cruelty that is uh, probably hasn't been seen since medieval days. Um, and the Europeans went along with the Americans in the beginning and said, oh, Israel can defend itself. And this is one of the factors that really social psychiatrists need to analyze and political psychiatrists have to analyze for us. Why did Europe and the U.S. and Canada and others so vehemently and totally support this, uh, this draconian measure by Israel to kill on an industrial scale that has never been seen before in this region. They killed 400 people two days ago, and they killed 700 people yesterday. And, and the world is just sitting there analyzing what's going to happen in this, there, or here, or there. Uh, so there's a kind of lack of humanity. There's a lack of people using their minds and their hearts to analyze what's going on. And I tell you what the reason is. It's very simple in, in my analysis. I've been now 55 years reporting in the Middle East and doing analysis and uh, traveling around, and I come and go to the U.S. all the time. I'm there now. I think it's become very clear since May 2021, two years ago, when we had the uh, uh, uprising in, uh, in, in, in Jerusalem and you had the uh, fighting in Gaza and protests all over Palestine against Israel. It's become clear that this now is seen by Arabs and almost all of the people across the global South as the last anti-colonial struggle. Israel is the is the last remnant of 19th century European white settler racist colonialism. They came. They pushed out the Palestinians, who had 93 percent of the population of Palestine, and they created an Israeli state. They succeeded. But they only succeeded because they had tremendous support from from the white racist colonial British, and now they have it from the Americans. So the colonial nature of this process, and it's still going on, they're still in the West Bank. Gangs of settlers are going around burning Palestinian villages. They've expelled 500 people from their villages in the last month or two. And they're, slow, they're still doing settler colonial expansion and driving out indigenous people. This is now the driving force for the resistance against Israel and against the United States and Europeans who who, who joined them. The, this, isn't, this is the last anti-colonial struggle in the world. And that's why you see huge demonstrations all over the world uh, when things like this happen. You know, there's, there's basically four global forces now that attract significant human political support across the entire world. And there are climate change, uh, Me Too, uh, gender equality, Black Lives Matter, which is anti-racism, and Palestine. And Palestine is a global issue, and the Americans and the Israelis and most of the Europeans and now the Canadians to a large extent are, are too blinded to see this reality. So they feel that we can send in more military force, be tough on TV, and it'll work, but it doesn't work. And, and so th- there's really time for a, a reassessment. And the Americans, of course, learned this in Vietnam. They learned in Afghanistan. They learned it in Iraq. But they haven't learned it. And the Israelis haven't learned from their experiences either. Uh, so resistance and defiance keep driving uh, people in the Arab countries and elsewhere to push back against what the Israelis are doing. And we're not Uh, saying get rid of all the Israelis or kill them. We're saying let's have a negotiated peace where there's an Israeli state that's predominantly Jewish like it is now with a Palestinian state where the refugeehood and exile of the Palestinians has been resolved according to international law and we have our uh, sovereign state and we live in peace. We've made this offer, the Arabs have made this offer repeatedly uh, to Israel but it's not interested in that because Zionism Uh, is a strategy, is an ideology that wants to create a Jewish state in a land that was 93 percent Arab. And it succeeded. And it doesn't want peace with the Palestinians. It wants all the Palestinian land, and they want it exclusively uh, for the Jewish people, You know, the world supported the creation of of an Israeli state, and after the Holocaust that was understandable, and not just the Holocaust, it was a century or more of of white European North American racism and and anti-Semitism against Jews. The Jews were terribly mistreated by white racists in Europe and North America, and they came to the Middle East because they knew that they had always lived there. They were accepted in society as, as as an integrated part of society. And, and the early settlers who came in the late 19th century and early 20th century up until around 1920, the, the Jews who came uh, were, were, were very accepted in the region. There was no problem. They'd always lived there until it became clear in the, around 1930 that they wanted to create a state. They wanted to take over and drive out Palestinian Arabs and have a Jewish state. And this coincided with the rise of the Nazis in Europe, which significantly increased the Uh, migration of of Jews out of Europe, and, of course, the United States and Britain refused to take them, refused to let the Jews come in. Uh, uh, So you have multiple dimensions uh, of, uh, uh, you know, historical responsibility. But the the, the final point is that we're at a stage now where the world—we and the world increasingly clearly see this as an anti-colonial struggle, aiming for a just peace equal rights for an Israeli state and a Palestinian state and the other Arab countries whose lands have been ravaged or, uh, or annexed or occupied uh, by Israel. The Israelis are not interested in that. The Americans totally are uninterested in that. And so this is a real, uh, a real dilemma. What, what The world needs to study more than, you know, what are Hezbollah's motives, is what is the nature of, uh, of North American European white racist colonialism, because it's still going on.
0: I wanted to go to something that just happened before the broadcast, and that is one of the hostages who was released speaking. Hamas has released two Israeli civilians um, held hostage in Gaza. On Monday, a Hamas spokesperson said 79-year-old Narit Cooper and 85-year-old Yochevet Lifshitz had been let go for humanitarian reasons. Um, Hamas shared video showing armed fighters releasing the elderly hostages to Red Cross officials just before the video ends. Yochevet Reaches back to shake the hand of one of her captors, saying, Shalom, the Hebrew word for peace. Earlier today, uh, Yochevet Lifshitz spoke to reporters in Tel Aviv. Uh, she describes the scene where she was kidnapped. She was very critical of the Israeli government, uh, saying that the Hamas had um, uh, released fire balloons, as she described it, that the fields were burning for weeks before. Um, she was taken on a motorbike with two Hamas fighters, then walked for miles through what she called a kind of um, spider web of underground tunnels. Once in Gaza, Yochevet Lifshitz says her treatment improved. Her daughter, Sharon, who flew in from London for her release, translated her remarks to reporters.
2: My mom is talking about coming there. When they arrived, they arrived into a law. Long- in which about 25 hostages were gathered and after two or three hours those hostages five of them she among them were taken into a separate room my mom is saying that they they were very friendly towards them and that they took care of them that they were given the medicine They were given. They were given medicine, and they were uh, treated. One of the men with them um, had a badly injured from for, uh, from a motorbike accident on the way, and the paramedic was looking after his wounds. He was given uh, um, medicine and antibiotics. Uh, that the people were friendly. They kept the place very clean.
1: We were very hurt by the fact that the IDF did not know where were the scapegoats.
3: Uh, they've warned us three weeks prior. With people who came to the road and burned fields, sent incendiary balloons to burn our to burn our fields, and the IDF did not address this seriously.
1: Suddenly, on Saturday morning, when everything was quiet, there was a heavy bombardment of the communities. And with that, the masses infiltrated,
3: blew up the expensive fence. Opened the gates of the kibbutz and entered in their masses. It was extremely difficult. I keep having those images in my mind. He's asking, Why did you shake the hand of the Hamas terrorist in a visual? They were gentle with us. Our needs were supplied.
2: My mom is saying that they treat them kindly and provided for them.
0: That was 85-year-old Yochevet Lifshitz being translated by her daughter, Sharon. Um, Yochevet's husband, Oded, is still a hostage. Last week, the legendary Israeli journalist Amira Haas talked about Oded Lifshitz on Democracy Now!
2: I have no idea how many people, how many of the hostages, some of them I I I, uh, uh, I know their relatives. I know one of them who is uh, 85 years old and a, a very brave uh, journalist who in uh, Oded Lifshitz, his name, I, I just realized it. He's 85. He, he was... Uh, In the 70s, he exposed the Israeli, the expulsion of Bedouins in the northern of Sinai. Uh, He exposed it in a a series of articles. I know some people that are relatives of, as as I said, of friends of mine.
0: So, that's Mira Haas, the legendary Israeli journalist, talking about Oded Lifshitz. He is still a hostage. His wife, as you can see, Yechevet Lifshitz, was just released. Rami Huri, I was watching CNN earlier this morning, just as this press conference was happening, and the response right out of it—it was the host, Erin Burnett, who is in Israel right now—said clearly she's voicing Hamas talking points. And when Yocheved said that um, the doctors came every two or three days and uh, gave them medicine, and if they didn't have the proper medicine, they would get some kind of replacement medicine, she said that proves uh, that Hamas is hoarding medicine because the Palestinians don't have it. Your response to Yocheved Lifshitz, what she said, she is a peace activist in Israel who is one of the hostages just released.
5: Well, my response to, to, to her, but also to you, is, first, don't watch CNN in the morning if you want news about the Middle East. Uh, that's, that's, that's bad for your health, it's bad for your mind, and it's bad for your uh, 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 intake of serious, uh, accurate news and analysis. There are many other much better sources around the world. Uh, mainstream American TV uh, is a catastrophe uh, in this respect. Uh, my reaction to the to the uh, to, uh, Yehud, Yehuda, I think her name is Yochavech. Uh, she, she you, know, this, you had, yeah. She she repre- she represents two things uh, to me, and I've spent my whole life um, in the U.S. and around the world interacting with very very close Jewish friends who, who, who I've known all my life, and um, and uh, people in the Arab world and, and Europe and everywhere. And my reaction is that she represents probably. The uh, essence, uh, I think, of what makes Judaism uh, such a special um, um, religion, Uh, it's based on ethics, it's based on love, it's based on truth, it's based on respect uh, for God, uh, and it's based on the quest, as God told Moses to tell the Jews to tell the world, it's based on the pursuit of justice, Uh, seek justice and only justice, uh, Moses said. Uh, so, she, that all echoes in, in, in what she said. She was honest. Uh, she was uh, uh, friendly. Uh, she said the truth, we assume. I don't think she was, uh, you know, orchestrated or taught to say any of these things. Uh, the fight that Hamas has, that we all have, is not with Jewish people. It's with the Zionist movement that became the state of Israel, which is widely recognized around the world as an apartheid uh, system. The second thing I recognize about her uh, comments is uh, how the Israeli defense system in the south, completely collapsed, was totally incompetent. Um, And those towns, those settlements, the kibbutzim in the south, are mostly located on the ruins of Palestinian villages that were destroyed in 1947-48. There was about 500 Palestinian villages that the uh, Jewish fighters before the declaration of the state of Israel. From late 1947 to May 48, uh, you had militant uh, Jewish groups carrying out terrorism, pogroms, um, uh, acts of uh, great violence to get the Palestinians out, and they succeeded. Uh, About 750,000 Palestinians were driven out of uh, Palestine before the declaration of statehood on May 15, 1948, Israeli statehood. And and there was 500 villages, and they were destroyed, and people left, and many of them are where those kibbutzim are uh, in the south. So I think that's another factor that we have to take into consideration, and it it raises the question of, you know, where uh, where do you make a distinction between uh, ordinary Israelis, uh, people in the reserve forces, people in the active uh, military? The problem is our... Our battle is with the Zionist movement and Israel, which has done what it has done to us, and, and we are resisting uh, and, and fighting back. But even in the heat of battle, you get human, you know, decency uh, shown by uh, by both sides, because we are both humans and we are decent. But we are also in a in a state of active, violent warfare that's been going on for almost. A century. Yeah, about a century, because, really, the fighting in Palestine between Jews and Palestinians started around the late 1920s is when, in 1929, was the big first clashes in Palestine and ever since. So it's been almost a century that this war has been going on. So you can't analyze any of this stuff in isolation. You have to look at the deeper context and, at the same time, don't lose sight of the humanity. Uh, of both the, the Jewish people and the Palestinian people.
0: Rami Khoury, want to thank you for being with us. Palestinian-American journalist, columnist with 50 years experience in the Middle East, senior policy—public policy fellow at American University in Beirut. We'll link to your article in Al Jazeera. Believe it or not, justice will prevail in Palestine. Next up, we look at Israel's endgame. Is it to push Palestinians into Egypt? Back in 20 seconds. performed by El Fanun, a Palestinian popular dance troupe. This is Democracy Now! I'm Mimi Goodman with Juan González. Health officials in Gaza say Israel's unrelenting bombardment of the besieged Palestinian territory has killed another 700 people over the past 24 hours, bringing the death toll over the past 18 days to more than 5,800 Palestinians. Among them, 2,000 children are dead. 1.4 1.4 million Gazans, more than half of the territory's population has been displaced. Many say there's no safe place to be in Gaza right now. The World Health Organization's pleading for far more aid to be allowed into Gaza through the Rafah border, crossing with Egypt. We're going to look now at Egypt's response to Israel's bombardment of Gaza and the negotiations over aid coming through Rafah. We're joined by Sharif Belkadius, independent journalist working with the Egyptian news outlet Masser. He won a George Polk Award for his Al Jazeera documentary, "The Killing of Shireen Abu Akla." His latest piece for The Guardian is headlined, "Israel's Endgame Is to Push Palestinians into Egypt, and the West Is Cheering On." Sharif, welcome back to Democracy Now. Um, Can you talk about all that's taking place right now around the Rafah border crossing and explain who it's controlled by um, and explain what Israel is calling on Egypt to do?
4: Thank you, Amy. I think, well, first of all, we have to understand Egypt is the only country other than Israel uh, to share a border crossing uh, with Gaza. And... um, What we've seen since uh, October 7th is um, a lot of negotiations around what's going to happen at this border crossing. So as it stands right now, um, Egypt has insisted on allowing humanitarian aid uh, into Gaza and uh, has allowed multiple countries to deliver aid to Arish um, in northern Sinai. Countries like Jordan, Turkey, uh, Qatar, uh, the UAE have uh, delivered... uh, uh, thousands of tons of humanitarian aid uh, that are kind of idling in these trucks uh, at the border. Um, so far since Saturday, something like uh, 75 or 80 trucks have been allowed in, about 20 trucks a day after a lot of negotiations. Uh, 20 trucks a day are being allowed in uh, by Israel into Gaza. And this is um, nowhere near enough. You know, According to humanitarian uh, organizations, uh, they've called it a drop in the ocean. And just to give you a sense, uh, 20 trucks a day amounts to about 4% of an average day's imports before October 7th, before um, 1.4 million people were dis- displaced, before 15,000 people uh, were uh, injured, before uh, you know, uh, close to 6,000 people were killed. So, um, you know, the U.N. is saying that hundreds of trucks a day uh, are needed. And on top of that, Israel has placed heavy restrictions uh, on that, even that minuscule aid uh, that's coming in. Well, firstly, uh, you know, Israel has bombed the Gaza side of the Rafah border crossing uh, four times since um, October 7th, even one time slamming uh, into Egyptian territory um, uh, at the border. But the aid, when it comes in, it travels to the uh, Aoga netzana border crossing with Israel, where it's first inspected by um, Israeli authorities. And then it eventually uh, gets into, uh, goes back to the Rafah border crossing and goes into uh, Gaza. Uh, this is a process that takes many hours. Um, but I think we have to understand that there's two issues that really stand out on the restrictions. First of all, All Mm -hmm. deliveries of aid to northern Gaza are prohibited. So none of this minuscule, even this like paltry amount of aid is getting to northern Gaza. Um, You know, hundreds of thousands have evacuated from northern Gaza after Israel warned people uh, to leave. But there's still hundreds of thousands that remain. And just to give you a sense, uh, the the biggest hospital in Gaza is in Gaza City, uh, Shifa Hospital, Uh, This is a hospital that usually in normal times has a capacity of about 700 patients. Um, It's currently overwhelmed with 5,000 patients. And you have something like 45,000 displaced people gathered in and around the hospital grounds seeking shelter. Uh, That's according to the UN. And none of the aid that's coming in is getting to them. But secondly, uh, and very importantly, the aid that is coming in, none of it includes any fuel. Fuel is not being allowed to, to enter. And fuel is just absolutely crucial for so many things, Uh, perhaps most importantly for electricity to run generators. And without fuel, uh, life-saving medical equipment uh, like incubators, ventilators um, uh, won't work. And so this spells a death sentence for for babies in neonatal wards and things like this. So one official has called it, you know, uh, that the aid coming in is more of a diplomatic symbol rather than actual meeting any humanitarian needs. Um, But uh, but we have to see where this is going.
1: And and Sharif, I wanted to ask you, uh, first of all, on the water situation, could you is all water still cut off by uh, by the Israelis? And and secondly, isn't the whole issue of uh, Israel urging people to leave uh, to leave Gaza through Egypt, uh, a clear sample of ethnic cleansing after all? Israel has many, uh, uh, many entrances on its side uh, of the Gaza Strip where it could allow women and children to come out of uh, northern Gaza, p- possibly even, sh- even bust them into the West Bank. But they're clearly trying to get rid of the Palestinians, as many as possible, uh, from their occupied territories.
4: Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, first of all, an issue of, of water. And f- people have talked about there's the, uh, a real risk of dehydration to death. Uh, People are drinking now dirty water. Uh, The aid that's coming in is not enough. You know, the first day it it, it, uh, provided water for about 22,000 people for a few hours. Um, And we're talking about a a place which has 2.3 million people. And no water has been allowed in uh, since October 7th. No aid at all has been allowed in, except for these small convoys. Um, There has been a a water pipeline that was... uh, Uh, that is supposedly working near Khan Yunus, but it's not nearly providing enough. And, yes, this idea of... So, first of all, this order comes down from Israel. Well, first of all, Netanyahu, when this all began on October 7th, took to the airwaves announcing a war against Hamas and telling people in Gaza to leave now, you know, and uh, saying, you know, he left unsaid said where they're supposed to go. But then there was this order to evacuate to the south, um, 1.1 million people were supposed to evacuate within 24 hours. And you see this kind of push uh, towards the Egyptian border. And uh, from what we understand, reporting uh, through Madame that Egyptian sources have told us that uh, in those days, in the, in the beginning at least, there was a lot of pressure and continuing for Egypt to open uh, the Rafah border crossing, to create a so-called humanitarian corridor, and to allow for the forcible displacement of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Palestinians from Gaza into northern Sinai. And that instead of the United States and other Western countries pressuring Israel for a ceasefire, pressuring Israel to, create, um, to allow in the necessary amount of aid, they have instead been pressuring Egypt to open the border and allow for this mass displacement and have been offering economic incentives uh, to Egypt to do so. We have to remember Egypt is undergoing a very severe economic crisis with a massive amount of debt, with record high inflation. And so, uh, you know, there's been talk of, uh, of debt relief, of financial compensation uh, in order to allow for this, uh, for this kind of displacement. Now, Egypt's response has been kind of very staunch on this, actually. Uh, the president, Abdel Fattah el sisi has very publicly rejected this idea uh, of having um, a, a form of ethnic cleansing and um, a forced displacement and exile into Sinai, uh, he has uh, cited Egypt's sovereignty in this. He has cited the Palestinian cause uh, in all of this. He has even, um, you know, is drumming up and is riding a wave of public support for this because, uh, you know, this is a, the Palestine as we heard from Rami khoury is a is a is a touchstone issue for so many across the Arab world for so many across the, the global south. And this idea of what they call a second nekbah, a second catastrophe and a second mass displacement, is firmly rejected. So even Sisi called for protests on Friday for people to take to the streets. And people did in Cairo and Alexandria and and other places. Although some people, you know, carried on those protests into Tahrir. Some were chanting revolutionary chants. And uh, we haven't seen that for for many years. And actually, Egyptian authorities have arrested over 100 people uh, because of that. But you know, I think many see Sisi's stance as laudable, uh, rejecting what is essentially an endorsement of a second Nakba. But I think we have to remember that, uh, you know, him citing the Palestinian cause really rings hollow. And we have to remember that Egypt, uh, its concerns really are national security concerns, uh, not wanting to have a a mass population of Palestinians who could, uh, you know, launch attacks against Israel from northern Sinai and not having to deal with the refugee crisis. Egypt, after all, has helped enforce the siege on Gaza for many years. It destroyed the tunnels that provided a lifeline to Gaza. It has allied with Israel in many different ways in security coordination. It has allowed Israel to conduct a covert um, air campaign, aerial bombing campaign in Sinai. Um, so, and it also treats Palestinians coming in and out of Gaza notoriously with with indignity but uh, but so far, this idea of rejecting uh, this kind of um, this kind of uh, mass exodus, uh, I think a lot of people are, are supportive of that of that policy and instead trying to pressure Israel to allow humanitarian aid in.
0: Ultimately, uh, Sharif, is it Israel, is it Hamas, is it Egypt, um, who is preventing that aid? As you said, we're seeing dozens of trucks now after weeks of not having anything, when in fact they're talking about the need is something like 400 to 500 trucks a day. And also, when it comes to what happened this weekend in Cairo, the so-called peace summit of Arab leaders, what did they come up with?
4: Well, the peace summit didn't actually come up with anything. There wasn't a joint statement that was signed. Uh, Sisi and uh, King Abdullah and others repeated uh, condemnations of um, Israel's bombing, of Israel's siege on Gaza. And Sisi again rejected this idea of a mass displacement uh, to Sinai. And I think, you know, we have to also understand that um, this idea of resettling Palestinians in Gaza to Sinai is not a new one. It's actually an old colonial fantasy. There has been numerous plans by Israel um, and others uh, of this idea of resettling the Palestinians in Gaza, who 80 uh, percent of which are refugees, by the way, who are refugees from 1948, uh, of resettling them uh, again uh, into Egypt. Um, in the in the mid 1950s, the U.N. devised a plan for this kind of mass uh, resettlement. And it was met with a popular outrage uh, in Gaza and kind we of crushed in a, in a popular uprising. Um so I mean these these kinds of plans are long standing um and there's there's a real fear that they will be realized but for for now we have to see uh, Egypt is rejecting it but Israel's is creating a situation where uh, life is becoming unlivable in Gaza
0: Sherif sure, abdel Kudus, independent journalist working with the Egyptian news outlet Matamasser, produced the award-winning documentary The Killing of Shireen Abu Akla* about the Palestinian-American journalist. Uh, we will link to your piece in The Guardian. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan González. Thanks for joining us.